The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we are thankful for the chance this morning to consider now and the future consider a road that leads to home. It's a sweet privilege that you give us now, but more importantly, it's a sweeter privilege that there actually is a road, there actually is a home, and you have promised to carry us there. We say thank you for that, and pray that as we now today and in this whole season consider the work that you have done to to make there, to be a home for your people, and to make and then to fulfill a promise about getting us there, not just calling us to come there ourselves, but a promise to carry us there yourself. We consider that these these weeks now leading up to Christmas, and we say, thank you, and please more will you teach and guide, build up and encourage, correct perhaps. Straighten us out as your people. Lift up our heads and cause us to see you and hope in you, and have some better idea about how to deal with the life that we face now on the way to there. So Lord, I particularly pray this morning that you would make your word clear as it is perhaps more difficult to deal with than usual. Help me to be clear, help us to listen well, and cause Jesus to, to rise up out of these words and on these pages and to shine. Please illuminate your truth here and honor the name of Jesus and build up your people. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. All our troubles are due to sin. All of them. All of our troubles are due to sin. Perhaps you've heard that before in some variation, here or elsewhere. Qualified, of course, because as I say that, I don't mean to mean that all of your troubles are due to your own sin. Some, sure. We need to think about that and face it honestly. But some of our troubles are due to other people's sins, directly or indirectly. And some of our troubles are due to impersonal systemic sin, things like systems of racial prejudice or economic disparity that it's hard to say anybody exactly did, but which surely exist and surely bring trouble. Even health problems, disease and injury, our cells malfunction and our bodies decay and break because of fallenness in the world the curse that's on the creation due to sin. All of our troubles are due to sin. It's the great plague in the world, in all of us, in each one of us, in me. Ever wrapped your mind around that and faced it? 
probably heard that before, but have you wrapped your mind around it and faced it? It's important to keep this in mind as we look out at a world that's hurting and full of trouble. It's important because it keeps us looking at the real problem and longing for the real ultimate solution to that problem. Not, not that we shouldn't engage in, in lesser solutions, in, in temporary solutions. We should be engaged in many things here in this world that will alleviate trouble, but it keeps, us in, keeps in mind for us that this is really only going to be solved when sin is dealt with. keeps us looking at the right thing, and it also gives us hope in the midst of all the trouble because it reminds us that someone has actually acted to solve it. And that gives us hope. And if you've ever wrapped your mind around that, not just, not just heard it as doctrine, but you've wrapped your mind around it and sat in it, then in some way or another you're standing with some of the Old Testament prophets who looked very closely at sin and its dramatic, destructive impact and longed for it to be dealt with in time and space, like right in front of them, in the societies wrecked by sin. They longed for it to be dealt with then and in all places and at all times. And through those prophets, God spoke and speaks to us and says, yep, that's the problem, and yes, I have dealt with it, and the day of answer is coming. He will deal with sin here and now and forever. And that is simultaneously a warning for correction. It is that, but it is also a promise for hope. And if we listen to the prophets, we'll hear both. And in different ways, that's what we're going to be doing over the next four weeks as we celebrate Advent, in a perhaps unusual place in the middle of the book of Jeremiah. The prophet Jeremiah. As we step away from 2 Timothy and, and step into the middle of the Old Testament prophets, and, and Jeremiah in particular, a whole bunch changes, which is going to introduce a bit of complexity this morning and over the next month. A whole bunch changes. We, we move back hundreds of years. We change language. We change cultures. We change speakers and writers. We even change genre. As you see this morning, the, the typeset in your passage will indicate that much of this is poetry. So a lot changes, and that can make it complex, difficult to hear, difficult to deal with. We often are accustomed to dipping into the prophets and pulling out little phrases. And as we read all of chapter 30 this morning to get the whole of the context, You'll notice there, there are things here that you, that you might have heard before kind of pulled out, but we're going to look at the whole of it and all of its confusing complexity and try to notice two different themes, two impulses, one of sin and judgment and one of hope and deliverance. They're both here. We're going to talk about both of them. And I hope that by the end of this, what happens is you see Jesus kind of sneaking up, never mentioned strongly implied. Read this along with me, thinking, I see these two impulses, but thinking, at the end of the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus talked about how all of the law, the prophets, and the writings are pointing to me, if he would have opened up Jeremiah 30, what would he have done with it? With that in mind, I think you'll see stuff. 
And we'll talk about some of that by the end. Jeremiah was a prophet sent by God to the kingdom of Judah for several decades, kind of straddling roughly the year 600 B.C. By that time, the Israelite people had fought and quarreled with each other and had been divided into two separate but neighboring kingdoms. The kingdom called Israel, or sometimes called Samaria after its capital city and region, in the north, and the kingdom called Judah in the south, which had as, as its capital, Jerusalem. So you got two kingdoms, north and south, Israel and Judah. And as time went on, the kingdom of Israel descended deeper and deeper into sin and idolatry, rejecting the Lord. The Lord had warned them, warned them in the law of Moses a thousand years before, and had warned them repeatedly then through the prophets throughout the years following. But Israel didn't listen. Their hearts were hard against him. And so he brought against them the greatest of all troubles, the threatened punishment in the law, destruction and exile out from the land. And the kingdom of Israel, the north, disintegrated. Judah, on the other hand, stayed faithful to God, more so for longer. But the wickedness in Judah and the city of Jerusalem grew and grew as well. And God sent the prophet Jeremiah then, as I could say, straddling the year 600 or so, to Jerusalem to warn them, to pull out from Moses the warnings and to, to show them where they had gone wrong. But then eventually, as the people rejected those warnings, the Lord turned his message through Jeremiah to talk about the coming judgment against Jerusalem. Babylon, in this case, would conquer the land, destroy the city, carry the people off into exile, devastation. The southern kingdom of Judah would also be gone. The whole big, long work of God, bringing the people of Israel out of Egypt into this promised land of milk and honey where he would be among them and they would be his people, he would be their God, gone. And into that bleak, extremely troubled context, the Lord also gave Jeremiah chapters 30 to 33, what we're going to be looking at over the next several weeks. A message that is about the coming judgment and also about a coming hope. So I'm going to read all this chapter, and as I do, Follow along with it. it. In my Bible, it's at about, it's page 657, about two-thirds of the way through the Bible. Follow along and look for these two different themes of, that are going to be the two observations I'm going to make this morning. One about the sin and the judgment and one about the deliverance and the hope, the restoration. And be thinking all through it, what would Jesus say about this? Jeremiah chapter 30, beginning in verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Write in a book all the words that I have spoken to you, for behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah, says the Lord, and I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall take possession of it. These are the words that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. Thus says the Lord, We have heard a cry of panic, of terror, and no peace. 
Ask now and see, can a man bear a child? Why then do I see every man with his hands on his stomach like a woman in labor? Why is every face turned pale? Alas, that day is so great there is none like it. It is a time of distress for Jacob, yet he shall be saved out of it. And it shall come to pass in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off your neck, and I will burst your bonds, and foreigners shall no more make a servant of him. But they shall serve the Lord their God, and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Then fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, nor be dismayed, O Israel. For behold, I will save you from far away, and your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return and have quiet and ease, and none shall make him afraid. For I am with you to save you, declares the Lord. I will make a full end of all the nations among whom I scattered you, but of you I will not make a full end. I will discipline you in just measure, and I will by no means leave you unpunished. For thus says the Lord, your hurt is incurable and your wound is grievous. There is none to uphold your cause, no medicine for your wound, no healing for you. All your lovers have forgotten you. They care nothing for you. For I have dealt you the blow of an enemy, the punishment of a merciless foe, because your guilt is great, because your sins are flagrant. Why do you cry out over your hurt? Your pain is incurable because your guilt is great, because your sins are flagrant. I have done these things to you. Therefore, all who devour you shall be devoured, and all your foes, every one of them, shall go into captivity. Those who plunder you shall be plundered, and all who prey on you I will make a prey, for I will restore health to you, and your wounds I will heal, declares the Lord, because they have called you an outcast. It is Zion for whom no one cares. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob and have compassion on his dwellings. The city shall be rebuilt on its mound and the palace shall stand where it used to be. Out of them shall come songs of thanksgiving and the voices of those who celebrate. I will multiply them and they shall not be few. I will make them honored and they shall not be small. Their children shall be as they were of old and their congregation shall be established before me and I will punish all who oppress them their prince shall be one of themselves. Their ruler shall come out from their midst, and I will make him draw near, and he shall approach me. For who would dare of himself to approach me, declares the Lord. And you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Behold the storm of the Lord. Wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest. It will burst upon the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the intentions of his mind. In the latter days, you will understand this. Jeremiah chapter 30. A long text with a lot of twists and turns, right? See, two themes there, though. I'm going to try to draw out those two themes and kind of lead them together to point towards this main point. The Lord will bring an end to our troubles one day in a great deliverance from sin. That's what I'm working towards this morning. That's how I see these two themes kind of working together here. The Lord will bring an end to our troubles one day in a great deliverance from sin. First, we're going to deal with the, 
the sin and judgment aspect. Here's the first point. God's awesome judgment against sin is real and certain to come. God's awesome judgment against sin is real and certain to come. That's the first impulse here and woven throughout this chapter. It's God's attack, his judgment against sin. It shows up everywhere in the chapter, but we're going to actually start at the end in verse 23. Behold, it says, the storm of the Lord, what's described then as a whirling tempest. Think of a tornado or a, a hurricane whirling around. An awesome event, as in an event that inspires awe. A, a major, a massive storm is awesome, and if it were to burst upon your head, as it says here, that would be awesome in a terrifying sense. And that's verse 23, depicting the wrath of God. Going forth from God to the creation against people. God's fierce anger, it says in verse 24. God's anger, God's wrath. It's both an attitude and an action. See, it says that his anger in verse 24 will not turn back until it has executed or accomplished what he intends in his mind. So it's not just emotional, like flailing. It's, it's deliberate and active and thoughtful. It's emotion in action on purpose. This is the Lord moving in judgment against sin. It's, it's a topic that we frankly just don't like to talk about that much wrath. But here it is, the word and the, all of the imagery. So let's, under, let's understand it. Let, let's be clear about it. It's important we notice something that, properly speaking, wrath is not an intrinsic attribute of God. It's important that we understand God's character. We think about who God is in his person, that wrath is not an intrinsic attribute of God. Rather, it's a derivative of what God is by nature. Think about this, for instance. God is, we could say, a few, God is just, a few of his attributes. God is righteous, God is good, God is loving, God is wise, God is true, God is pure, God is holy, etc. And part of being, let, let's say good, let's just take one of those, good, part of being good is to care when good is violated. To want to protect the good and to put down that which opposes good, sin. To put down the trouble that's behind the trouble. And taking care of good and caring to act to protect good, that's God's attitude and then his action of anger against sin, wrath. So it's very real and very certain, but it's not properly what God is. It's how God reacts to what he is being violated and compromised, attacked. It's very real and very certain. He disciplines to correct away from sin. He disciplines in measure always, and he acts decisively eventually. And that's what we're seeing here in this chapter. In the historical context here of 
of Jeremiah. Stated here in a bunch of different ways. We can see it all throughout. Verses 14 and 15 twice mentioned. Because your guilt is great and your sins are flagrant. Speaking to these people here in this context. He also mentions verse 14, lovers. uh, An allusion to a, a common image in the Old Testament Israel, the people of Israel were married to the Lord in a a covenant and and they were then adulterous in this sense as they pursued other gods and other goddesses as as kind of extramarital lovers. That's that's the point of the language there. Flagrantly and repeatedly, widespread and publicly, idolatry was rampant in the land as was injustice and immorality and violence and deceit all manner of sin and all manner of rejection of God in this covenant going on for centuries, for centuries. And God was patient for a long time, but their guilt was very great and the time had come to an end. The storm comes. And as it says, he struck the people with a series of terrible blows, grievous wounds, it describes there. Verses 5 to 7, great distress taken as captives to a foreign land into Babylon, into bondage, as verse 10 mentions. All predicted by Moses, written down Leviticus and Deuteronomy, read and preached and warned about, doubted and ignored and scoffed at. But as Jerusalem burns and is turned into rubble and as people are slaughtered and carried off as prisoners, obviously now, real. A tornado breaking over the heads of a rebellious, unbelieving, sinful people in judgment against sin. And then also, notice this in verse 16, also over the heads of the wicked people who were all too eager to carry out the slaughter. All who devour you, it says, shall be devoured. Those who plunder you will be plundered. They'll be carried off into captivity too because their sin is sin too. God works his purposes through the sins of the world for sure. But that does not in any way condone sin. God uses the sin of, in this case, Babylon. He uses their wickedness to accomplish his purposes, but he judges their wickedness too because he is an impartial judge. He is holy and righteous and is against sin everywhere in anyone, period. He's holy and he is God. That's the situation here in this chapter. That's the situation in the historical context We see it touched on repeatedly all throughout the chapter. Staring Jerusalem in the face, certain and coming. So what do we do with that today? I mean, we're not Jerusalem. We're not not Judah. We're not Israelites back then. What do we do with it today, now? Well, we, we stop and we look at it and we take the same point they were meant to take. We do more with it And we must do more with it. But we stop and see the same point. We don't rush on by it. We we take in what they were meant to take in, listen, and respond. I was in a class once studying Old Testament prophecy. 
And the teacher explained, you know how in Sunday school class at church, the right answer is always Jesus? No matter what the question, no matter what the topic, the answer is always Jesus. There's a, there's a joke about a little boy in a Sunday school class. The question is, you know, what's brown, furry, has a long tail, chirps, lives in trees and eats nuts? And the boy says, it sure sounds like a squirrel, but I know the answer is Jesus. So Jesus. Jesus. It's always Jesus. Sunday school class, the answer is always Jesus. Well, he said, in the prophets, the right answer is always repent. If the prophet's talking, no matter what it seems he's saying, no matter which direction you're inclined to follow, I, I don't know, it, sounds like, it seems like it's a squirrel, but I know the right answer is, it seems like it's condemnation. It seems like it's, but the, I know the right answer is always repent. If the prophet's talking, it's because the answer is repent. The turning of our internal thoughts and our internal desires away from sin and self towards God and dependence on him, that's what God wants Though he is patient, he is always patient for the purpose of calling his people to repent, calling his people back to him, back to dependence on and obedience. And he will discipline. He will address events in small ways, shaping and disciplining and punishing and striking and afflicting, however needed, eventually to work to strike down sin and turn people from it. God is moved to wrath even in this passage, to grievous, angry action. Because sin is so very grievous and destructive. Because sin is so evil and God is so good, therefore God is so angry with sin. To forever, if God were to forever look the other way and forever be compromising and forever be allowing of that which is against his nature and against his beauty and destroys his creation and defames his name, he would not be good and would not be God. He is passionate about moving against sin and has resolved to put an end to it. So repent today. Don't wait for the consequences to become catastrophic. Repent today. There is a warning in this to those of us who who may be toying with sin and tolerating and playing with and allowing and compromising. There is nothing, I know, I know I'm talking to Christians here mostly. Hear this. There is nothing about being a Christian that changes what I've just said. There is nothing about being a Christian that says, oh, because I'm a Christian, God doesn't care about my sin. No, he does. And you should care twice over because you bear the Lord's name. 
There's nothing about grace and faith and mercy that means God doesn't care about sin, do whatever you want. No, 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 no. Now, very carefully, how we address sin, how we repent, how we fight against it, it's very, very, very important that we not hear anything that I'm just saying right now and think I'm supposed to like double down on my resolve to not do it. No, even the Ten Commandments themselves in the Old Testament begin and are bracketed with, are laced in promise. I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. Remember how good I am? And I will leave you in the land of promised rest and milk and honey. There's promise. Looking back, I was faithful to my promise. It's all covered in promise. And so how we repent and how we move into obedience is an obedience that is based on faith in the Lord. Trusting his grace and his mercy to work with us. But it is all about to work with us to draw us to obedience. Not to work with us to let us do whatever we want. There's a call and a warning in that that we need to think about. But there's also something really encouraging because sometimes, do you not hear this sometimes in the world? One of the uh, most frequent attacks against the idea of the goodness of God is the very presence of evil. How could a good God allow that? And the answer is, he doesn't forever. He is patient and long-suffering. Don't, aren't we thankful for that for ourselves? He is patient and long-suffering. He is patient and long-suffering. He is patient and long-suffering until he is not. Take heart. Take heart in that. And that's, that, I understand, you put yourself in the victim's shoes, that's encouraging. Because there is some, I heard a speaker one time say, sometimes, sometimes we say, God damn them. And we mean it. And ironically, the good news is, that sometimes God means it. Thank God. Thank God. There's an answer to evil. Now, we, we live in a time now where we are pleading, pleading, pleading for people to turn from evil and offering them, Jesus comes now at this time offering them mercy and offering them forgiveness and inviting them, please come and find rest and be forgiven. Come, come, come. But the backstop, which we have to be realistic about and have to understand, and in the victim's shoes can actually say thank you for, is that there is justice in the world. Nobody gets away with anything. That's really important. It's especially really important that victims know that. And God makes clear here I was a thousand years patient, but not a thousand and one. 
He drew the line because sin is evil. So hear that and hear it as, as, as warning. And maybe for you what you need to think about right now is where is sin in my life that I'm making friends with? That I'm not opposing but I'm frankly cozy with. Repent. Turn from that. Like a Christian does. In faith, trusting in God's promises, not by doubling down on willpower, by believing his promises and leaning into the fact that he will receive you in grace and in mercy. He will forgive and he will bless. So maybe you need to think about what do I need to do for my own sin? What do I need to turn from? What do I need to repent of? And maybe you need to think of kind of in, in relief that there will be justice. There will be. This is all real. It's half of this chapter, but it's not the main point. It's real, but it's not all, and it's not ultimate, and it's not the reason that Jeremiah was given this chapter. It's a lot of the rest of the book of Jeremiah, and it's all through this chapter, but it's not the main point of this chapter. That's actually the second point. The second observation, the day is coming when God's people will see their fortunes restored, trouble-free. This is actually the main point. The day is coming when God's people will see their fortunes restored, trouble-free. There's a lot that's serious and somber. I mean, you can't deal with words like wrath and, and captivity and blows and, and anguish. You can't deal with those words without being sobered by them. That's the whole situation Jeremiah's looking at when he looks out the window of his house or looks up out of the well in which he's been imprisoned in. But I didn't pick this passage and these chapters to preach them around Christmas time because I was really looking for something to preach about the wrath of God. That would be odd. I picked this because it's really about, and I think the really rises in, in kind of in, in relief against, kind of in contrast against, the wrath, it's really about forward-looking hope. Verse 3, the Lord declares, the days are coming when I will restore the fortunes of my people. It's repeated in different ways all throughout verses 7 and 8. In the time of distress, Jacob will be saved out of it. The Lord's going to break the yoke and burst the bonds that burden and enslave his people. Verses 10 and 11, he says, Fear not, I'll, I'll save you from far away. I am with you to save you. That's the other impulse in this chapter. It's all, all through the chapter, again and again in all kinds of different ways. And then in verses 18 to 22, we get a very um, a lengthy, somewhat detailed description, more detail on what that would look like. I will restore the fortunes of Jacob, God's people. And then God, through Jeremiah, kind of paints a picture. 
putting it very much in language that would make sense to them. They're living in the city. He just said it's going to be destroyed. And then he says, however, the city will be rebuilt right here, right where it was. The palace, too, they'll be destroyed. They're going to be rebuilt, just like before. Verse 19, a people numerous and honored and thankful and full of celebration with children born and playing freely and a full congregation all carrying on as before with safety because their enemies are destroyed. They are a people who are starving to death, who have been whittled down by warfare, who are besieged in a city and are about to be slaughtered and those who live carried away. And he says, the place is going to be rebuilt. It's going to be magnificent. It's going to be full of people who are laughing and dancing and thankful with the enemies wiped out. And there will be a prince among you, one of your own, not one appointed by a foreign power as an overseer, but one of your own people. Right in your midst will be your prince again, and he'll be welcomed back into my presence, not kept at arm's length because of his sin, but welcomed in. I'm I'm actually going to be the one to draw him in, says the Lord. Life back to what it was, fortunes restored. All summarized then beautifully in that couplet in verse 22, a a couplet that traces all through the Bible, and you shall be my people and I will be your God. This. Everything fixed and made right in the world and no more trouble. All is finally all right as the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. So what's he talking about? Well, he's predicting through Jeremiah, remember the historical context again here, about the time when God's going to bring them back from captivity. He said, it's going to last 70 years, and then I'll bring you back, and I'll fix it. He's going to bring them back to this land. He's, He's pointing them away to exile, but then pointing them back. The punishment will not last forever. Verse 11 said that he will not make a full end to them, but he'll bring them back, and everything will be restored, so take heart. That's what it says. And it would be easy to read that and misread it and take from it the idea that lies at the heart of every religious system except Christianity and lies at the heart of many misunderstandings of the Christian faith. It'd be easy to read this and say, ah, sin is the problem. And what was needed, and what is needed, is some really serious discipline. Heavy consequences. How God deals with sin is he gets really serious and he lays down the law. And he puts the fear of God into people. And then we shape up, and then sin gets dealt with. So preacher, preach that first point once again harder and longer. That'll fix us. Fix them. That's what God says. Fix them. He whacked them. He brought them back. It was all fixed. Right? You can read this and think that. 
And you could read a little bit of history and think, yeah, that's sort of what happened. They sent him away, and he brought him back. They, They came back 70 years later. They returned dancing and joyous. They rebuilt the city. Babylon was destroyed. Yeah, you can read about this in the book of Nehemiah. That actually happened. But before the paint is dry on this newly built city, it all falls apart again. Right? Do you know the story? I know a lot of us do know the story, but some of us don't. They come back, they rebuild, and by the end of the book of Nehemiah that's talking about the rebuilding, by the end of the book, they're again in flagrant sin. And the enemy's dead? Uh, Not quite. They're surrounded by enemies, threatened. And a prince of, the, of their own, and, and they will serve David, their king. They never had a Davidic king again, ever. Not ever. It didn't happen. And then God draws them near. Well, sort of, except that this lasted for about 100 years. They stumbled along, and then God went silent for four centuries. Hardly sounds like this again. You'll be my people and I'll be your God, except I won't be. I'll be broken and distant again for four centuries. You could read this and you could think, like every other religion thinks, and like many misunderstandings of Christianity think, what's actually needed is, a, is firmness and discipline and law. And you better preach that with vigor and firmness and put the fear of God into me in there and then I'll shape up. Sin's my problem and that'll be the answer. You could read this that way, but you'd be wrong. Something better was needed that would address the real underlying problem that would restore our fortunes, restore the fortunes of the people of God by fixing the thing that's actually broken within people that keeps inclining us to drift away towards sin and away from God. We've got something malignant growing in us. And dealing with all the metastases of it doesn't actually solve the real problem. It's got to get cut out or dealt with at the core level. God had another plan going on here. The intentions of his mind were much larger and much longer term than just a 70-year trip to Babylon. And part of the plan is to show that that plan doesn't work. If you think it's actually going to get fixed by me kicking you out and sending you to Babylon and bringing you back, watch this. Nope. We're right back in the same place we were before. There's got to be something else. There's got to be something else. There's got to be something else. There's got to be some other intention that God has here. Another way to break the yoke of his people forever, to save them fully, to secure them as his people. Another way to break his wrath over the head of one deemed wicked. And after he had finally executed that judgment, then his wrath would be turned back.
The plan's not revealed here, is it? There's just a really, really, really pregnant sentence at the very end. In the latter days, you will understand this. Now, he means, we live in the latter days, the days of Messiah. This time between the coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, these are the last days. And we can look at this and we can understand something. You can think, what would Jesus do with this? Where would Jesus put his finger on this and say, what would he do? I think he'd pick up, break their yoke and burst their bonds. Verse 9, they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. When did the Lord raise up a Davidic king? Not ever in these people's lifetimes. Not ever in their centuries of existence after this point. Not ever again until Jesus. And not ever again since. When will the Lord draw a prince from their very midst, draw the Lord's prince near? No one but Jesus. Who is the one who would bear the wrath of God so that we would not have to and would turn back the fierce anger of the Lord away from us ultimately and finally? The intentions of the mind of God are to to lace Jesus all through this chapter without ever writing out his name. To put him in here to make us long for, there's got to be something else. It's like pointing at a window. You point at a window, you actually are pointing through the window. The window itself is, yeah, they came back from the 70 years in Babylon, yeah. But look through the window, there's something else he's pointing at. This coming of Jesus when the wrath of God is poured out on him and his people are delivered after that. But then let's look through that window too. There's something even beyond that when Jesus will come back again and the wrath of God will be poured out to wipe out sin permanently, completely everywhere. And the people of God's fortunes will be restored fully and finally. It's like we're looking down the cores of time seeing wrath and deliverance and wrath and deliverance, and wrath and deliverance. None of it's spelled out completely clearly here. But you who live here in the latter days, you see it? Do you see it? What do you do with that? Well, What do you do with Christmas? If you only use Christmas as a time to give material gifts to one another, to enjoy family gathered around the table or gathered in the living room, games and food and drink and and enjoyment and reconnection and That's a good thing. But what Christmas is meant to be for is a simultaneous celebration and forecast. Like this passage is. It would would indeed be a, 
a, a celebration of sorts. They, they would read this and, and would read it later and say, God kept his word, he brought us back, but this isn't quite enough. Because we still have the problem beneath the problems. There must be more. And then they would see Jesus in it. We take it now and we say, yeah, there's, there's, there's something sweet. Let's celebrate. We see Jesus in this. Here's, here's the way that we are made as people and he's made our God. The wrath of God poured out on this Jesus. Sweet, wonderful, hallelujah. But we need something more because I'm still plagued with trouble here. I, I'm in a time of celebration. Use Christmas as a time of celebration. The Lord has come. And use it as a time to look forward. The Lord must come. He's got to come and finish this off. Because until he does, the trouble and the sin behind it, though we are freed from its power, and, and, and we really are, if you're in Christ, you really are different. You have a different power that lives in you. You have a freedom from the yoke has been indeed broken, but sin's presence is still real and troubling. So we look at this and we say, thank you for accomplishing it, but please accomplish it. Finish it off. Wipe out sin. Send Messiah again. Deliver. Save. Make us your people and be our God in person with us intimately forever. This passage should point us ahead, not just to today, but to the coming day. Cause us to hope and to rest and to hope and to rest back and forth, praising God for what he has done and is doing and longing for him to finish it. That's what Advent is about. Let me pray. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.